Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia. That was Vladimir Putin in a televised address that he gave on the 21st of February. And Dominic, um, the Russian president has uh, really been casting himself as a top analyst of Ukrainian history recently, hasn't he? He has indeed, Tom. Obviously, we've been looking forward to doing a podcast about the history of Ukraine for a while. Um, We did think about having a self-styled historian of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin from Moscow, but he's otherwise engaged, it seems, um, in invading Ukraine. So we're going to do uh, the whole sweep ourselves without his assistance, would you believe? Um, aren't we? We're going to, it's an, it's an amazingly interesting, convoluted and complicated story, the history of Ukraine. It is, absolutely. And on that, that line that I began with, modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia. I mean, that, that is very important to Putin. Obviously, it provides him with his, his casus belli, his justification for invading Ukraine. Um, but implicit in our intention to, to look at the history of Ukraine as something distinct is a kind of rejection of that idea, isn't there? Uh, yes, I, I don't think, well, we're going to go through the history for, you know, 1,500 years or so, 1,200 years, I suppose. Um, but I don't think that history does show that uh, Ukraine was created by the Bolsheviks. I don't think it was. There was obviously Ukrainian national sensibility before that, a sense of Ukraine as a distinct place. Um, the name Ukraine means kind of Ukraine, the ba- the land on the edge, the kind of borderland. And that's part of Ukraine's problem. But it does, it, it is not Muscovy. It is not Russia. It is something distinct. And to Vladimir Putin, that is an affront because he thinks it should be part of Russia, that the Ukrainians are little Russians. But as we shall see in the, in the, in the, the sweep, they have a very entangled, complicated history, rather like Britain and Ireland, actually, or, you know, um, lots of other countries with smaller neighbors, but they are different phenomena. And Dominic, do you think that the reason that this story is very, very complicated, that, uh, you know, as as the listeners will find out, there are a lot of partitions, the the borders kind of move this way and that, they vanish completely and so on. Um, do you think that, that that is essentially what enables Putin to make this case? That that Ukraine often, I mean, you know, it hasn't existed as a national entity for long sweeps of time. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that, Tom. Um, I think it's part of it. it it's part of a of a of a part of Europe that includes, let's say, Poland or Belarus, um, where borders have changed a lot, where empires, great empires, have have swallowed up um, nations, and then they've disgorged them again at the end. And I think that makes the story much more complicated. And almost every detail of what we'll be talking about is actually contested. So the name, even the names, you know, you and I both call Kiev. Well, we think of it as Kiev. We as don't in think chicken Kiev, don't we? Exactly, because <laughs> yes. we're children of the sort of 70s. Of that age. Um, and even the names of the places, the names of the people um, are contested. So for those of you who are listening, kind of poised to complain, we'll probably get them all wrong one way or another. 
um, because that's the nature of the beast, actually. I mean, even the very origins of Ukraine are, are, have been argued about by historians. Um, well, Dominic, just just before we um, we go back and we start looking at the history of it, two further questions. Um, the first is, do you think our, our sense of Ukraine as, as a distinct national cultural entity, that that's been blotted out by the fact that its history in the 20th century was so horrendous, so that we tend to think of its sufferings rather than perhaps of its its cultural achievements? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Tom. Um, we do think we... We think of Ukraine as part of what the historian Timothy Snyder calls the bloodlands. So kind of Belarus, Ukraine, Lithuania, um, Poland, places that were fought over by Hitler and Stalin, basically. It's just a sort of colossal blood-soaked battleground. And there is much more to the history than that. Yeah. But it has to be said, yeah, there's an awful lot of terrible suffering in Ukrainian history. I mean, there's a period in the 17th century that's just called the ruin. Yes. And when you've got a bit of your yeah. history that's called that, you know it's not good. Um, and one one last question before we we, we plunge into the uh, the vast sweep of Ukrainian history. Um, previously, we did a kind of emergency episode on the history of Afghanistan when the, the American evacuation happened. Um, so this is the second time that we're responding to great geopolitical events with a kind of emergency episode of this podcast. Do you? Uh, I mean, would, how large a crisis do you think this is as a historian of of modern Britain, modern America, modern Europe, and mm. presumably a, a, a greater moment of geopolitical crisis than the evacuation of, of Afghanistan by NATO. Yeah, I think absolutely bigger than the evacuation. The evacuation of Afghanistan was a humiliation for the Western powers and for the Western kind of model, but it wasn't an existential threat. Um, I think uh, it's it's no exaggeration to say it's the great crisis, really, that probably the world has faced since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Um, I mean, the comparison that a lot of people make is with the 1930s. It's maybe not massively, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's obviously not quite on that scale, but, you know, um, a, a war in Europe that could see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people killed, could see a, a huge capital city in Kiev be surrounded, potentially bombed. I mean, that's a pretty terrifying prospect. And, um, you know, you can see it in the, in the in the sort of the, the stock market and oil prices that will have well, even if you know Britain and the Western powers don't become militarily directly sucked in, it will have a huge impact. I would say on the lives of ordinary people. Right. So the specific measure that um, Putin announced on, in his televised speech on Monday was that he was um, recognizing the independence and sovereignty of the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, and these yeah. are regions in the um, the east of. Ukraine, very heavily industrialized with a lot of Russian speakers. Um, previously, he had annexed um, the Crimea, which had been part of Ukraine, but previously hadn't. I mean, and essentially the point of this is that the borders are constantly slipping in this area. And you could argue that that's because it has a kind of fundamentally featureless quality, the landscape, that it's very difficult to draw borders on it. And do you know, Dominic, the first historian to point this out, how how difficult um, and challenging it was to uh, to put a to, to kind of pin down features to work out where you were if you were roaming around this land. Uh, well, since it's you, Tom, I- I'm going to guess it's Greek. Is it, it Greek? Is it? It um, is. Is yeah. it the father of history? It is. It's Herodotus. So this is really this is my my big contribution is that <laughs> um, the land that we now call Ukraine first appears in the very first work of history ever written, which is Herodotus's histories. And he describes the Persian king Darius um, trying to conquer the Scythians, the people who inhabit 
that region. And basically the Scythians just run away. And yeah. poor old Darius goes kind of herring around all over the place and he just can't find anything to conquer. Um, and then he, he with, withdraws and uh, he abandons Ukraine to the, uh, the kind of the various nomadic people who had lived there. And essentially that is its history for another, um, well, certainly another thousand years, thousand years and more. It's various nomadic peoples occupying it, kind of loose, vague empires. So, uh, Dominic, we actually did um, uh, quite recently, about a month ago, an episode on um, the Vikings in the East about how um, Scandinavians came down the Dnieper uh, and, and, and established a great capital at Kiev. Um, but you remember, you remember that we had the, uh, the ferocious Pechnegs who were... Yeah. The kind of super- were very fierce. Very they fierce. were cutting off people's heads and turning them into 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 golden drinking vessels. All that was, kind of stuff. That was which, that was absolutely which, par for the course. Which the Scythians had been doing back in uh, back in Herodotus's day. So it was it's obviously- just a thing that people say about nomads, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It's just the sort of standard thing that people say. Yeah. So we did do the Vikings in the East podcast, and and, and that's where the Ukrainian history, and indeed, I mean, this is how complicated it is, and indeed, Russian history often begins so it begins with for those people who didn't listen to those viking episodes um the vikings before they came actually pretty much just before they came west to england and battled you know the anglo-saxons now for the great they went east and they went down the rivers down the dnieper and the volga and they this fellow called rurik legend has it was asked to come into novgorod by the local slavs and basically sort it all out and install sort of uh, sort of uh, the, the the firm smack of government, and um, then some pals of his or some sort of cronies, Askold and Deer, they went off and founded Kiev, and then one of Rurik's another sort of crony of his, who was who was the sort of regent for Rurik's son Igor, a man called Oleg, he went and captured Kiev, and basically that that sort of bit of Viking feuding started this state which you know a lot about, Tom, which is Kievan Rus. And that's where we get Russia, the word Russia from. Yeah, but it's ruled from Kiev. Um, yeah. So Kiev, which I think had actually existed before they arrived. It'd I been I think a kind of a, Slav town, yeah, it a, hadn't it? It kind of fought on a hill. Um, but it becomes the centre of this um, kind of increasingly, um, I suppose, I dare one say, civilised um, empire, because it, it, it starts to take on... Um, the influence of, of Byzantium of Constantinople to the south. Uh, it, it has this vast sweep of lands reaching right the way up to Novgorod and beyond. So huge in scale. Um, and uh, I think one could safely say that the chief feature of this um, of, of this uh, empire is the incredibly entertaining deaths of its rulers. <laughs> yes. so they, there's according according to the the sources, which are not all they could be. Uh, there was one. There's a guy who uh, gets tied up between two. Uh, fir trees that have been pulled down and then they cut the fir trees and they bang and he splits yep. in two and then there's you made the one. same noise in the, in the full <laughs> podcast tom yeah, very good to see you keeping the same noise <laughs> and then there's uh, another guy who um kicks the skull of his horse and a snake comes out and bites That's him right. yeah but um th- they're also very proficient so um there's saint olga who you know becomes a saint but you're a big fan of saint olga as i big, remember big fan of hers and she um she firebombs um refractory uh, local towns by unleashing burning sparrows on them uh, yeah. and then of course there is um vladimir who is the um the ukrainian prince who converts to christianity when you say ukrainian he's 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 rus okay, they're called the rus aren't they because right. for those people who didn't listen 
to the last podcast. Um, so they're called the Roos because the 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 root means kind of rowers, doesn't it? Oarsmen. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, Going down in, the rivers. Yeah. And the lakes. So, so that's what they're sort. So what they're sort of creating is it's a sort of it's not quite maritime, isn't quite the right word, but it's a riverine empire of trading stations and the focus of it which makes it no longer viking in the long run is constantinople that's the place you go to sell all your stuff and that's the sort of great economic and cultural magnet and and you mentioned vladimir when he converts to um to orthodoxy he has a great auction doesn't he not is auction the right word he basically sends people out to go check out the muslims and the jews and all these different religions and he chooses orthodoxy and that is the defining moment in creating east slavic kind of culture because it orthodoxy becomes the the big thing dominic you mentioned slavic i mean that's also the other great thing isn't it that that if these are you know these viking chieftains gradually become ever more slavic and the parallel that we mentioned in in um the, the, the fuller length episode we did was the dukes of normandy becoming ever more french so it's that kind of process that yeah. the, the, the the distinctively nordic quality of these princes of kiev gets kind of swallowed up so you have vladimir who who uh, you know very classy he marries the um the sister of of the byzantine emperor so that's you know, no barbarian prince had ever pulled that stunt off before and then his son, Yaroslav, who, who starts off as Yaroslav the Lame and then ends up Yaroslav the Wise, which is the measure of how well he does. I made the um, same joke that I made last time. He's upwardly mobile. For a, for a lame man, he's upwardly mobile. Very good. Very good. Um, and he, I mean, he starts laying down law codes, um, all the kind of stuff that you need as a go-getting um, 11th century uh, Christian monarch. And then it starts to slightly fall away, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's a sort of it's definitely a, a state of a kind by that point. Um Kiev and Rus, it's it's huge geographically. It's probably not as co- it's not as sophisticated as the Eastern Roman Empire as Byzantium. It's not as coherent as let's say Anglo-Saxon England is at the same time or Francia, France. Um but yeah, it's a it's a big entity. It's a big and important European entity. And it's marrying into royal royal uh, European royalty. It as is. Well, I'd say, say yeah. it, it is European. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Kievan Rus is definitely European, um, in the in the sense that there is a kind of a Europe. It's part of the same constellation. It's part of the world of Christendom, all that stuff. But you're right. It, it starts to go into decline in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. Um, part of this actually is we you know we mentioned about Constantinople being the big magnet. It's partly because Constantinople itself is is having a tough time um, in these years, particularly after the Crusades. So the Crusades, which are responsible for so mm. much kind of misery in the world, when they sacked Constantinople in 1204, that's very bad news for Kiev and Rus because Constantinople is where they sell all their stuff. That's their kind of that's their destination, um, and that's sort of you know that that's what puts more pressure on. And also the the Kievan rulers are they have a very strange system where when one dies it's not necessarily the eldest son that that succeeds it's just the next eldest person in the whole family so that just makes that's it, disaster isn't that it? just makes it endless <laughs> yeah because if there's like one family person feuds. older than you you know you just kill them but as soon as you're the oldest you have to watch your back so yeah. um so there's yeah, a terrible make for amount, a good christmas there's a terrible amount of feuding and even before the arrival of um, some very colourful characters from the East, who we'll come to in a second. Even before that, there is a sense that Kiev is losing a bit of momentum to two other um, rivals that are both in what is now Russia. So one is Novgorod, 
which is lo- of long standing, and the other is a is a is a principality called Vladimir Suzdal, which is nearer to Moscow, which is sort of central Russia. So it's sort of losing a bit of momentum, and then we have these characters who all the listeners will have heard of, called the Mongols. Yeah, and generally when the Mongols turn up. <laughs> that's bad news it's yeah. not good news. it's not good news is it and they turn up outside uh kiev in 12 40 they do so the mongols we have a for um i know we'll have some new listeners because it's a, a newsworthy subject so um if you're if you enjoy what you're listening to we have a podcast coming up in a few weeks just about genghis khan and the mongols which should be very good fun with a friend of the show ali ansari um the mongols I, I, this is a bit of a spoiler i don't know whether ali's going to try and present a revisionist take on the <laughs> mongols the mongols i think the, the mongols i think are, are pretty poorly behaved <laughs> so they turn up outside kiev in 1240 and they sack kiev i mean they're basically as they do to every city that defies them they they sack it they absolutely tear everything down they kill i think fifty thousand people and destroy out of out of out of you know 40 big buildings they they tear down 34 of them they basically utterly level Kiev. And after that, the power of Kiev and Rus is utterly, utterly broken. The state basically is destroyed. And that, the coming of the Mongols, I think, is such an important moment in this story because Kiev and Rus, which occupied what was now Ukraine, is broken. And the big rising power is a, um, a grand duchy that basically is a client of the Mongols, is a vassal of the Mongols and a kind of intermediary of the Slavs. And that is a place called Muscovy, Moscow. And that's going to be the genesis of Russia. So you get a slight, it's, it's also orthodox. It's got the same Slavic culture, but it's a, it's a different kind of pole to Kiev. But also, I mean, in the 14th century, by the 14th century, if we're looking at Kiev and Riz, what has been, you know, what, what's going to become Ukraine, um, it's basically divided three ways, right? So, yeah, so it's really messy. The, kind of. the Mongols, the, the brilliantly named Golden Horde. The Golden which, Horde. Imagine oh, it's a, absolutely a, my yeah. favourite horde. If you were going to have a yours? horde, you'd call it, it the Golden Horde, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, I'd go I'm for the Golden now. Horde every time. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, Poland, which of course is Catholic. Yeah. Um, and then th- there's another duchy, which is the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Yeah, such an interesting subject. So long-standing listeners will know that we promised about 18 months ago that we would do a podcast about the history of Poland and Lithuania, the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, because it's such a strange state. But basically, yes, you've got the, well, there's the Golden Horde, and that sort of evolves or devolves in, or sort of degenerates into basically a Crimean carnate. So um, your Crimea is this peninsula that juts out into the Black Sea, and there's a sort of, there's um, a carnate based on Crimea. And, and that's and where the, the Black Death um, yes, originally comes to, to Western Europe because there's a siege there and they supposedly fire bodies and all that kind of stuff. That's right. Exactly right. And then you've got the, a bit that's run by the Poles and then you've got a bit that is taken over by Lithuania. And Lithuania is a very strange place because it's a massive, massive um, realm, but it's quite sort of, it's not immensely sophisticated by European And it's still pagan. At this and stage, it's pagan. Right? Yes. So, so interesting. It's the last pagan redoubt in, 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 in Europe. Um, but then in 1385, Lithuania and Poland basically have a dynastic alliance. They're not, they're not, they're, they're still separate. It's a bit like Scotland and England under James, friend of the show, James the first with his big tongue. Um, so Poland and Lithuania have the same king who is Vladislav Jagiel. 
and he well pronounced. Thank you. My Polish is top notch. Um, so, uh, so they become, they have the same ruling kind of uh, elite or the same king rather. And then in 1569, they finally become united in one Commonwealth, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And actually, if you look at a map of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, almost all of present-day Ukraine is part of that. It's not it, part which of, is all the way to the Black Sea, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. all the way to the Black Sea. It's not part of – so it's, again, it is absolutely not part of Muscovy at this point. It does have a separate, distinct history. Yes, it's Slavic. Yes, it is Orthodox. But it is um, – it is ruled, and actually what ends up happening is that what becomes Belarus belongs to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, that part of the Commonwealth, and what becomes Ukraine um, belongs to the Kingdom of Poland. So th- that's how, partly how Belarus and Ukraine have separate identities. And then basically the story is kind of, you know, they, they've got Polish overlords. And the, and the Poles are, are Catholic. They are exactly and so. The, the Ukrainians are Orthodox. Yeah. So, what kind of tensions are building up there? Big tensions, Tom. You love a religious tension. I do. Um, so, what you have is we're going forward now. We that the, the the Commonwealth was created in 1569, so in the 16th, 17th centuries. And you have to imagine it's very, very rural. It's kind of flat rural territory. These huge landed estates with Polish elites, Catholic elites. The Polish later call it the Krezy, which is the edge lands. Um, and that gives you a sort of sense of how people have often thought of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Herodotus and the borders, this idea of being a, a constant fracture zone, a kind of border zone. I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't have a distinct identity of its own, but it, it, but it means there's always people fighting over it. Anyway, the Poles, as you say, are Catholic. The, what come to be called the Ukrainians, so the word that people use before Ukraine is Ruthenians, which is obviously comes from Kievan Rus. And they so, continue to use that word, don't they? Right. I mean, in, um, in, in Austria and Hungary and yeah. all that kind of, they, the word Ruthenian continues to mean Ukrainian up until what, 19th century? Is it? Yeah. I mean, early 20th, 20th century, century, Tom. Yeah. Early 20th yeah. century. Definitely. So, yeah. Absolutely. And there are still people who are called, who are called Rusins, um, in kind of the Carpathian mountains to this day, people who call themselves Rusins. Um, so from Rus. Anyway, so they are, um, Orthodox, as you say, but they're ruled by, uh, kind of catholic overlords and what you have which is really interesting is that in 1596 basically they do a deal with the vatican because obviously religious identity is so important and the deal is that they will create their own sort of church within catholicism that is all both orthodox who's doing who's doing this the ukrainian nobles the sort of yes exactly the religious elites in what is now ukraine so it's called the uniate church so basically it's a catholic church it's under the jurisdiction of the pope but they get to keep their eastern rite they get to keep their slavonic liturgy and they get to have married clergy even which catholics aren't normally allowed so in other words they look it looks like an orthodox church but it's under um sort of catholic suzerainty and that becomes a huge dividing line for the next kind of 300 years or so, because the Russians, who are obviously Orthodox, don't approve of when they end up ruling Ukraine, they don't approve of the Uniate Church at all. They're completely against it because they see it as anti-Russian. Yes. And also at the same time, isn't it about kind of 1580 that um, a, a, a kind of great cultural center is founded um, and it has a printing press. And I think the first Bible in Slavonic is yeah. published there. So it's this... You're starting to get the sense of this distinctive, dare we call it Ukrainian yet? I mean, 
that, that well, that's kind, kind of, of anachronistic, like, isn't anachronistic, it? Anachronistic, but but a distinctive religious culture, a distinctive um, intellectual culture is starting to emerge. Yeah, it, you know, and it's and it's the end of the 16th century, which is a, a time where this is happening across Europe. So again, <laughs> this is part of a, a you know, it's not specific to to, to you know to this eastern half of Europe. It's happening in London. It's happening in France. It's happening you know, all over the place. Right, Amsterdam. That's, the story is not as you say. Ways. Absolutely, it's not a unique story. Um, they are a definite. There are people with their own kind of folkloric traditions, their own religious traditions, and so on. And, and as you say, through printing, and that will become a much bigger thing. Obviously, through literacy in the nineteenth century, they're getting a sort of sense of themselves of their own distinctiveness. But there is one other element that I think is pretty unique. Yes. So I was going to ask you about that. So is, you don't know what it this, is, Tom? I or do. do you? I, well, I do. Would it? Would it? Would it be the um, the Kazakhs? It is the adventurers, the free men. That we know as the Cossacks. It is exactly very good. So yeah, the word Kazakh is Turkish, and as you say, it means kind of outlaw, kind of freebooter, um, lad. And, yeah, sort of soldier of fortune. Um, yeah. And what basically happens are is that in this area of sort of what is now southwestern Ukraine, sorry, southeastern Ukraine, um, there are these places that the Poles call the wild fields. <laughs> this is big sort of open steps, yeah. and over time. Runaway serfs, um, exiled nobles, bandits, outlaws, they end up kind of taking refuge in these great sort of open grasslands where um, their enemies or the sort of Muscovite or the or the Polish authorities can't catch up with them. I mean, it's a bit like a kind of Wild West in America, yeah. American West. So except, actually, that they're, except that they're gathering honey. Yeah, it's a lovely detail. <laughs> they are. They're beekeepers. They're frustrated <laughs> beekeepers. So they end up in this, they go to the Lower Dnieper. There's a phrase which means beyond the rapids. So beyond the rapids of the Lower Dnieper. And um, it, it's Zaporohi. And the place ends up being called Zaporozhia. And they become known as the sort of um, the Zaporozhian host. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrongly, by the way, so don't bother. My Ukrainian is is not is 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 as bad as my Russian. Let's put. Well, should we way. just say the Cossacks? Yeah, well, we could, should do. But I think the the fact that they're a host, we've had a horde. I think you've got to have a host as well. <laughs> yeah. So they are. Um, they're not Uniot. They are Orthodox, um, and they are very. They're kind of answerable only to themselves, and they're very kind of volatile and, and fierce and stuff. And they have. They hate, they don't like the Poles. They don't like being bossed around by the Poles. Are they a proud and freedom loving people? <laughs> they, are. <laughs> they are. They're a bit like those. Who are those fellows in um, Game of Thrones? The Dothraki. Uh, the Dothraki. There's a bit of a kind of Dothraki. I mean, the Dothraki are also kind of native. Well, American in which side. case, in which case, they're a throwback to the, the Scythians and the, you know, the, 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 the tradition of nomadic people. I think they absolutely are. There's yeah. a, and almost self consciously, actually, Tom. That they 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 have this sort of we won't you know there's a sort of libertarian element anarchic element to them, and a very important figure actually a massively important figure in this history I shouldn't undersell him is a Cossack leader called Bogdan Khmelnytsky I'm sure I've pronounced that um, <laughs> I'm very so, very poorly I, I noticed you're I, not pronouncing any of these <laughs> names well I I knew that his name was coming so I. I <laughs> I've been I've been practicing it all morning, and you um, never got so to I, say it. <laughs> no, so this guy, go on, tell yeah, us about him, <laughs> Bogdan Khmelnytsky. So he leads a rebellion against the Poles, against the Polish kind of landowners of Cossacks in 1654, which is an incredibly important date. One of the the really important dates in this whole story. It's 300 years, by the way, before 
Khrushchev will give the give Crimea to Ukraine. And he does that deliberately because it's the anniversary of this moment. So Khmelnytsky reaches a deal with the Russian Tsar in this at this point, 1654. And the details of that deal have been argued about very ferociously by Russian and Ukrainian historians. Okay, so what would Putin say about it? Putin would say, Khmelnytsky and the Cossacks agreed that in return for Russian aid against the Poles, they would be basically vassal subjects of the Russian Tsar. And that from this point onwards, the Cossacks living in southern and sort of eastern Ukraine uh, were subject to the overlordship of Moscow. And what what would Ukrainians say? Ukrainians would say, no, that's not right. The deal was that we would be allied to the Russians and we would maybe acknowledge them in a very vague way as overlords, but we would have our own chief called a hetman, our own leader. We'd have our own arrangements. We would have be able to conduct our own foreign relations. And I'm not qualified to tell you which of those versions is accurate. And in a way, Tom, I suppose it doesn't really matter which is which is truly accurate, if indeed if one was. What matters is the meaning that people give them now. Russians see this as proof that Ukraine is kind of subject to, to Moscow, and Ukrainians say, no, this is a moment of our independence. So, Dominic, this is, this is happening 1654. Uh, at the same time in Britain and Ireland, this is when the, the, the protector at Cromwell's... Oliver Cromwell, yeah. Is, you know, his troops are essentially um, brutalising Ireland, um, very much kind of annexing it to uh, English control. Uh, Cromwell has also brought Scotland under English control. Do you think, is there a kind of similar process there, do you think? A, a kind of inchoate process of, of, of state formation? Do you know what, Tom? It's not a bad analogy. I mean, obviously, it's not an exact analogy by any means. Um, but I did, when I was reading this story and preparing for this podcast, I did think quite often about the relationship with Britain and Ireland. And, um, you know, that sort of sense of having very much intertwined histories, but di- but still... But distinct. But distinct, exactly. That it's the same thing. You know, it would be mad now. It would be mad to deny that Britain and Ireland have an incredibly tangled history, but it would equally be mad to deny or to, that Ireland is different, that it has mm-hmm. its own identity and its own kind of flavour, its own historical narrative. Um, and so would it be an exaggeration to say that the way that Ukrainians feel now about Russian claims that, that uh, Ukraine is part of Russia would be like uh, the Irish might feel if suddenly someone in Britain said, you know, you, you're part of the United Kingdom? I think you're exactly right, Tom. It's exactly what I thought. That's, I mean, that's funny that we both thought the same thing in, because we didn't, we're a bit no, like, we uh, we're, it's a, this is a bit like when Putin said to his men in, in the thing on <laughs> mo- Monday, we absolutely haven't discussed this beforehand. You will now tell me what you think. So this is, I mean, we genuinely haven't discussed this. We genuinely this haven't, no. Beforehand. And this is exactly what I thought, that it is rather like somebody from, if somebody in 21st century Britain said to somebody from Limerick, you're not actually Irish because that's not a thing. You're all British. I mean, it would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? It'd be, it would seem demented. Although, of course, there are people in, in, in Ireland who do say they're British. So, again, that's a... But I don't think uh, they would a, deny, I don't think even they would deny that there is a thing, such a thing as being Irish. I think the, sure. the, the, sure. the implication of yeah. the more extreme kind of Putinist interpretation is that basically Ukrainians are, are just a form of Russians. But it's just that if we, you know, if we think that, that the, 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 the complexities of, uh, 
you know, Russian speakers who perhaps are sympathetic to what Putin's doing in the, the eastern regions of Ukraine. And this is all, you know, weird stuff that has nothing to do with us. Um, and you just have to look at Northern Ireland to see, yeah, to see the, the historical legacy of different traditions, different exactly. rulers, all that kind of stuff. Well, that, just on that, that just on the language thing, it was really interesting, actually. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is a Russian speaker. And actually, lots of Russians, uh, being a Russian speaker does not automatically mean you are pro-Russian. Rather like, actually, in Ireland, being an English speaker doesn't mean you're... <laughs> Yeah, you, of you, you crave unity with the United Kingdom. Anyway, I, maybe Tom, we should have a break now, and we should return with the ruin. The ruin, <laughs> exactly. So don't go away. We will be back with the ruin. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History, to um, a special edition we are doing on Ukraine, prompted, of course, by um, current events. Um, Dominic, when we left, we had arrived at the Cossacks, yeah. and the great Cossack chieftain, Kamelinitsky. <laughs> oh, come on, Tom, that was poor. <laughs> Kamelinitsky, yeah. who has um, signed a treaty with uh, Muscovy, the rising power of Muscovy, um, the exact terms of that treaty remain contested to this day, but he's he's a, a potent, imposing figure um, leading this kind of almost independent Cossack state in the area of what's now Ukraine. But things go very rapidly wrong. And this is the period that Ukrainians know as the ruin. So what is so ruinous about the ruin? <laughs> well, it's it, there are two moments in Ukrainian history that are just, even by the standards of Ukrainian history, dementedly complicated. The ruin is one and the 
period just at the end of first world war of the first world war is um the other so the ruin the 17th century is a is a is a horrendous period generally because it's a sort of little ice age global kind of cooling famine everywhere religious conflict everywhere and what happens in the ukrainian version of that is the thing called the ruin the poles call it the deluge basically everybody fights everybody so the cossacks fight each other the cossacks fight the peasants the poles in uh involved the russians are involved the crimeans are involved the ottomans are involved they're all these sort of rival armies um doing deals with other people and, and fighting each other um it's utter chaos and kind of bloodshed and famine and well, I mean, so to cut a very, very long story um, short, at one point Ukraine is kind of partitioned along the line of the, the River Dnieper. So the Poles get the western half, what's called the right bank, and the Russians get the the other half, the left. Is bank. that the is that the hilariously named Treaty of Eternal Peace? I think it is the Treaty of Eternal <laughs> Peace. Um, it's, yes. It doesn't quite worst, live up to its billing. The, the the most inaccurately named treaty of all time. Exactly. Um, I thought. I mean, what basically happens is. Um, in central and eastern Ukraine, you have the Cossack Hetmanate, the, uh, the sort of Cossack state. Who wouldn't said. want to be a Cossack Hetman? Well, well, so that's top Cossack, basically. The top, the top Cossack is a man called Ivan Mazepa. He's very famous, friend of the very, show, very who, controversial. Because um, we, Dominic, we did um, we did a whole series of um, the top ten times that the weather has influenced history, didn't we? And Mazepa featured in that. I've forgotten we did. We, he, yeah, he we did. The, the, the Great Northern War. In the Great Northern War. But, between so point, the Swedes and the Russians. So at one point, just when you think Ukrainian history couldn't get any more complicated and more... The Swedes turn up. The Swedes <laughs> get stuck in. Um, basically, what happens is, is that um, Mazepa clearly dreams of an independent... Ukrainian state. He wouldn't have called it Ukrainian. They're not using that word, but he dreams of a state on that territory. Um, he's been allied to Peter the Great, the the sort of colossal and and very, as we discovered in our parties podcast, very poorly behaved, um, very bad house guest. <laughs> yeah. um, Peter the Great. Don't sublet to a yeah Don't. seven foot tall Tsar. Um, so he he's been allied to Peter the Great. Um, he turns against Peter the Great and basically does a deal with Peter the Great's implacable arch enemy, Charles the Twelfth of Sweden. And after their fight in the Great Northern War for control, who's going to be the top dog? Who's going to be the superpower of the sort of North? Which is such a great name for a war, isn't it? It is. If you're going to have a war, well, if you're going to have a horde, it's going to be golden. If you're going to have a war, it should be Great Northern. I think. Yeah. So this is a great, great episode for brilliant names. It is. And they fight Charles the Twelfth and Peter the Great and even Mazepa. They have this great showdown. Um, at a place called Poltava in 1709, one of the great decisive battles of European history that most people in Britain have never heard of. Um, it is won by the Russians. Mazeppa and Charles XII of Sweden are comprehensively defeated. And from that point on, really, most of Ukraine just ends up in the, in the Russian imperial orbit. Now, Mazeppa, it really interestingly, so he's an absolute hate figure for the, for the Russians. And, you know, for centuries, Russian Orthodox churches, they were just going to curse his name on the first Sunday in every Lent. Mazepa, this terrible villain. But in Ukraine now, he is something of a hero. So his face adorns the, the ten hryvnia note. He's a sort of national, you know, he's a sort of pioneer of patriotic independence movements and all this sort of thing. Which is one of the reasons why Byron wrote about him. Right. So Byron, wrote, Byron wrote an entire poem about him. That I did not know, Tom. Yeah, your knowledge so of your knowledge of Byron obviously is second to none. So, well, it's it's all set in the aftermath of the Battle of Poltava, and um, Mazepa tells the story of his life to cheer 
Charles up. Oh, and it's a very nice. good poem. Very good poem. It involves him being tied to a horse and being sent galloping across naked across the steps. Well, I don't know. Did that happen in real life? I don't know. Uh, you're not. I know you're uh, not sure about that. Okay, but but, but you know, for the, the appeal of him for Byron is that he's a figure of national independence, of you know, explosive energy, all that kind of stuff that Byron was as well. So um, we're starting to get into the age now, aren't we? Of of the kind of the romantic sense that peoples have a, a national essence exactly and yeah and well, we're again towards the age of nationalism i suppose yeah but but ukraine at this point does not obviously exist as anything like a a, a, a nation state because so it's mo- still the hetmanate right? it's still so the hetmanate exactly most of it is absorbed into the russian empire um and, it, and its hetmanate nature is basically being whittled away its autonomy is whittled away and catherine the great basically abolishes it at the same time the other bit of Ukraine that we haven't really talked about, which is Crimea, and the bit just by Crimea, um, ends up being – that's the Crimea incarnate, and it has been since the collapse of the Golden Horde. Um, Catherine the Great annexes that in 1783. She calls it Novorossiya, New Russia. That, incidentally, is how Vladimir Putin sometimes talks about it. He basically says, you know, new, it's New Russia, it's part of Russia. Um, this is places like Odessa or Dnipro, kind of big Ukrainian cities. And Catherine the Great settles um, newcomers there, so Russians and Ukrainians, uh, in, in place of the kind of t- Tatars who had lived there before. But D- Dominic, there's another region of what will become Ukraine as well, isn't there? Galicia. Yeah, that's, Pol- that's still Polish. So that's still part of of Poland, but then towards the end of the 18th century, yeah, Poland itself, Poland it? vanishes and gets is it, cut up. And, is it self? So I, we should say actually, Ukraine is not alone in having this very tangled, convoluted history where bits of it keep disappearing and reappearing. Because exactly the same thing is happening with Poland, and indeed with other European countries as well. They do. Um, I'm sure you must have seen them. Kind of get them on YouTube or whatever, where they show national borders in Europe, kind of moving at a very fast speed. Yeah. So you know, twenty twenty years every second or something. Exactly. And if you look at Eastern Europe, far more than in Western Europe, it's absolutely bewildering. It is because because Portugal empires come from nowhere, <laughs> spread across you know half right. the continent, vanish again, get divided up, and and essentially this is what ukraine has it's, suffered this is exactly what happened so so portugal is always portugal it's always in the same place well whereas, until it gets swallowed up by spain and then whereas, it comes back whereas, again whereas but, poland is kind of moving around all over the yeah. place on the map sometimes it exists sometimes it doesn't sometimes it's just in the wrong place completely well ukraine yes the western bits galicia is um is polish and basically what ends up happening is as poland itself is absorbed most of modern day ukraine ends up being Russian in the Russian Empire, and Galicia belongs to Austria-Hungary. Now, if you look at any map of, of Ukraine on um, linguistic, kind of economic, um, political voting, and all these kinds of things, Galicia, the Western bit, always is slightly more different or more extreme than other parts of the country. That's the bit around Lviv, and Lviv itself looks like a, a kind of Polish or Central European city. And that is the bit that the Americans when they withdrew their embassy from Kiev, I think a couple of, you know, a few days ago, last week, perhaps that's the, the region they went to. Yeah, exactly. And that's where persistently, that's, whenever there's trouble with Russia, that's where Ukrainians have tended to go to that, the Galician yeah. end of Ukraine. Because it's the, it's the most sort of central European rather than Eastern European kind of end of Ukraine. Um, there are, it has been said, you know, I, I don't know how true this is apocryphally, Putin is supposed to have said at one point to 
I don't know if he, I can't remember if he said it this to George W. Bush or he said it to one of the leaders of Poland. You know, why don't you just take that bit and I'll take the rest? Because Ukraine isn't really a country. I mean, that's actually not right. Ukraine clearly is a country. As you see from what happens in the 19th century. So in the 19th century, the bit that is Russian. Um, which is most of it. Which is most of it. The Russians make a huge attempt to Russify it. I mean, we sort of talked about how Catherine the Great and, and Novorossiya. So they really try to suppress the Uniat Greek Catholic Church. They want mm-hmm. everyone to be Orthodox. They try to suppress Ukrainian language. Um, what's also happening is that parts of Ukraine, specifically the Donbass, which is the area that is in the news right now, so Donetsk, basically, that becomes very, very industrial. We did a podcast, Tom. We did. About Anglo-Ukrainian relations when England played Ukraine in Euro 2020, even though it was held in 2021. Um, And we talked about how Donetsk was founded by a man called Hughes, a Welshman. And we culturally appropriated him, didn't we? We did, because we claimed he was English. (laughs) Well, we didn't, but... No, we didn't. And, but, and, and we, we, but Welsh we listeners trained, will never forgive we, us for that. No, they won't. Um, but right. And that's actually an interesting parallel with Wales, because what happened in Wales in exactly the same period was that lots of English speakers, English people, flooded into South Wales to work in the, you know, the, the, the coal mines yeah. and the steelworks. And at the same time, exactly the same time, Russian speakers are flooding into this part of Ukraine to work in the steel you know, factories and the coal mines and all those kinds of things. So it's the same thing. And so thing. that's why the, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic that Putin's just recognised, that's why there's such support, because there are so many Russians there. Well, there are, there are Russians. There are, def, there are unquestionably speakers. some, whether there are majorities is a, is a very fraught question, um, but they are, there are definitely, I mean, there are definitely a majority of Russian speakers, but whether a, a majority of pro-Russian kind of Putinists, that's a different matter. Of course, of course. But, 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 but in general, um, the, the cities, the towns, the industrializing towns are, are more Russified. They are. And agreed. it's the countryside that is the kind of. So the um, peasantry are still kind of Ruthenians, which, yeah. uh, you know, the word Ukraine is beginning to be used in the 19th century and the universities are really key as well because in the universities and in sort of liberal intellectual circles you have exactly the same thing in ukraine that you have in 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 germany or what becomes germany in italy in poland um in 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 ireland frankly later on um in what becomes um the czech lands so a sense of rediscovering a kind of folklore uh, slightly it's, is it an invention of a national story it's not i think invention is too strong and also the great creations right so yeah. there's, there's there's um uh taras shevchenko yeah who is exactly. the, the great mid-19th century writer who is a peasant so he you know, that's terribly important isn't it it's the idea of um kind of the authentic peasant consciousness rising up from the soil and exactly. giving voice to these deep primordial national instincts that yeah. reach back centuries and centuries and centuries. But they, you know, Tom, you mentioned Ireland before. That's, I mean, anybody who's read W.B. Yeats will be very familiar with this idea that there are this kind of, there are the people of the soil, you know, who've been, yeah. who've been downtrodden and oppressed, and now they've discovered their kind of national voice. Yeah. And that's exactly what Shevchenko represents. So he writes about um, romantic stuff about the Cossacks, about how great they were. He writes about how terrible the Tsars are. Um, yeah, and lots there's of, lots are, of folklore, lots of you know all that kind of stuff. He is ex- exactly, and the and the Russians are, are very down on him. 
So the Tsars, yes, well, not surprisingly, Alexander II in 1876, he bans Ukrainian books, he bans Ukrainian recitals in Ukrainian language, he bans Ukrainian in education. Um, it's very, imp- I mean, well, this is about the point. Maybe it's a tiny bit early, but this is about the point when people are, are beginning to use the word Ukraine, Ukrainian rather than Ruthenian. Um, and in a way, that's because they want to cast off the idea that they're, they're just little Russians. They're not just other Russians. They've got their own distinct history and they, they want to, you know, to celebrate it and stuff. But this, this tradition of, re- of, of repression of Ukrainian national consciousness, national, you know, language, all that kind of stuff. The, the, the kind of Putinist approach, as so often, goes back to the Tsars, right? So it it's, is. It's, it's a Russian Tsarist approach. Absolutely. That you, it you is. stamp down on Ukrainian language, Ukrainian literature, all that kind of stuff. And so what you get in this period, as again later, is that you get Ukrainian writers fleeing to Lviv and to exactly. Galicia. Exactly. They do. Because in Galicia, in the Austrian bit, um, I mean, the, the Austrians aren't massively keen on this either. I mean, they try to stamp it down a little bit, but they try to stamp it down in a very kind of half-hearted kind of way compared with the russians um so the, yeah, Austrian, the russians are all kind of whips in siberia and yeah austrians are all cream marches through snow and the, stuff. the austrians are all like fancy uniforms and cream cakes and mozart yeah they're yeah, doing you know it. what you'd rather have yeah and now sometimes my um my editor wrote a book about my editor at penguin wrote a book about um the habsburg empire and he said i was much too indulgent on the austrians and that actually you know they could be pretty strict themselves but i still think like you tom I'd take my chances in a Viennese coffee house <laughs> before, before a Russian prison. Um, so anyway, yes, there's definitely Ukrainian sentiment among the intelligentsia, and there's a definitely a sense among the peasantry that they are some, they are something. They are not just Russians before the First World War. Right. And, and so we're now coming, you know, very, very early centuries of the 20th century, and everyone will know that the kind of emergent uh, sense of nationalism among peoples who have been part of empires, uh, you know, going to generate quite a lot of um, upheaval, uh, <laughs> most notably in Sarajevo. But before that, you have um, you have uh, um, a, a kind of group of students, of activists, um, people like that, um, the Revolutionary Ukrainian Party, who in 1900 um, published a pamphlet that for the very first time states as a political goal that there should be one single indivisible free independent ukraine yeah and i so think that's in the first year of the 20th century there it is and that's in the, in kharkiv tom which is actually right, yeah. a, a, a now right in the firing line of a potential russian invasion and is one of those cities that um you know putinists say ought to be russian is really russian and the fact that's coming from there is, is quite telling i think so obviously yes there was the sentiment before the first world war and then the first world war completely turbocharges it actually really interestingly what happens when the russians in the first year of the first world war the russians make great headway against the austrians in the first few months and when they go into galicia which has been this kind of motor of ukrainianism um it's so telling what do they do they shut it all down they try to suppress it they try to shut down the union church they tried they ban the use of ruthenian um but obviously then the germans and the austrians drive them back and basically the russian war machine ends up falling apart in 1917 and if you thought the ruin was complicated what happens between 1917 and 1922 in ukraine 
I mean, it's not just complicated, it's completely bonkers. Incomprehensible. So there's, I'll tell you, I tried to make a list at one point. There's a Ukrainian People's Republic. There's a West Ukrainian People's Republic. There's a Bolshevist Soviet Republic. There's an anarchist um, uh, group as well. There's a hetmanate. There's a directorate. The Germans are there at one point. The Poles are there. The white Russian army are there. So it's, I mean, you have multiple, multiple armies. And to give you a sense of this, all of this, by the way, is missing in Vladimir Putin's recital of history that he did on TV. He basically says, oh, the idea of Ukraine was created by the Bolsheviks. But he misses out the fact that at the end of the First World War, there's this obvious tremendous resilience of the Ukrainian idea because there are all these different people trying to set up a Ukrainian state. So they really do. Lots of different people clearly believe in a Ukraine. But Dominic, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be fair to say that also that this uh, the, an understanding of this is missing from um, most people in the West. I mean, certainly, basically, from you know, until I looked at this, from my understanding of the period, because it's so complicated for, for us in the West. You have the First World War, and then and then it stops. But basically, the horror for the for Ukraine is that the the period of horror that is initiated in 1914. I mean, it doesn't stop you know, for decades and decades and decades, because essentially what had been the first world war mutates into the Russian civil war. Yeah. But Russia at this point includes a large chunk of Ukraine. Yeah. So the Bolshev, you know, the, the, so you've got, I mean, basically you've got with the Russian civil war, you've got the, um, you've got the white armies who are Tsarists. You've got the, the red army. Um, so the Bolsheviks, and then you've got a Ukrainian nationalist army, yeah. And they're all kind of well, charging around. Plural. Yeah, armies are all kind of charging around, attacking each other. So to give you a sense of this, Tom, Kiev, in two years, it, it, it changed hands 16 times. <laughs> God. So <laughs> there's a brilliant novel by Mikhail Bulgakov called The White Guard um, that captures this. And, and basically, you know, there are just armies. Every few days, there's a different army entering the city from a different direction and killing loads of people. There are horrific pogroms. Um, there are some historians who argue, you know, the the Holocaust in the sort of what Timothy Snyder right. calls the Bloodlands. That that kind of gets going even before the Nazis pitch up. So we should we should we haven't mentioned the Jews, and Ukraine is also one of the perhaps the great European center of Jewish culture. It is exactly. So we mentioned Lviv. Um, Philippe Sands, the human rights lawyer, wrote an absolutely brilliant book yeah. called East West Street about um, the extermination of the Jews in Lviv, uh, um, where he has a kind of his family history goes back to. And it absolutely, for those people who are interested, it really brings that alive. The Ratline as well, his his brilliant yes. podcast series. Um, the, uh, the the German commander who he's, he's kind of trying to track down um, was the commander there, I think. That's right, so, exactly, yes. But the history of that is much, I mean, it goes back to the, so the Jews are, are kind of settling there through the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, this, this incredibly vibrant culture, East European culture. So, it, you know, in a sense, the kind of the idea that you have of East European culture is at least as much Ukrainian as it is Polish. Yes, it is. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, at least as much, maybe more. Well, because, but, because those, the, the, the border between Poland and Ukraine is very messy. You know, there are people yes, on either side yeah. of the border. So, yeah. so there's not a, a, a distinct because their histories are rather like Ukraine and, and Russia because their histories are so tightly interwoven. But you do also have this tradition of a kind of occasional pogroms. You do. Peasant, peasants who, um, because Jews are settled much more in, in villages than out in the fields. Uh, and, and then in the 19th century as well, I think there are, there are some. So it, that's also part of this 
toxic brew that is starting to bubble up. Exactly. Yeah. And, and actually, the next few decades are a very grim story. But one interesting point before we get into the grimness. Um, going back to Putin's remark about the Bolsheviks inventing Ukraine, that's not clearly not the case. Because what happens in 1922 when they form the Soviet Union is basically even the Bolsheviks in Ukraine recognize that the national idea is now so strong that Ukraine cannot be admitted to the Soviet Union as as merely part of Russia. Well, because it, because the Ukrainians had just defeated the Red Army, right? I mean, you know, Ukrainian Nationalist Army had just defeated the Red well, Army, because they even all, though they've now been swallowed up again. Um, yeah, because clearly the national idea, as, as all across Europe in the 1920s, as in Ireland, as in what becomes Czechoslovakia or what becomes Yugoslavia, the national idea is so strong and so powerful, you can't just crush it. So... And so that's why it becomes the Soviet Union, right? Not Rush, not the Russian Empire, because and and Ukraine is implicit, well, not implicitly, explicitly acknowledged as a constituent kind of nation of yeah. the of the Soviet Union. I mean, maybe they wouldn't use the word nation, but um, but then obviously everything is really horrible. So there's a famine in 1921, 22, um, and then Stalin launches collectivization at the beginning of the 1930s. So basically, what really is a famine? Yeah. So what's really so, ha- what's happening there is Ukraine is has been the breadbasket of the of the Russian Empire, but Stalin wants to sell all that grain ab- abroad to pay for industrialization because he thinks you have to industrialize because Marxist kind of logic demands it, and so, he wants to collectivize as well. Right? Yeah. So, so he wants- so he's he's essentially. I mean, wherever peasant farmers are collectivized. There is suffering, there but is. because there are more peasant farmers in Ukraine, therefore the scale of suffering in Ukraine is off the scale. It is. So about, I mean, let's say if about 5 million people died in the Soviet famine of the early 1930s, probably about 4 million of them um, were Ukrainians. This is the event known the as the Holodmor. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, you know, it's a terrible, uh, it leaves this awful scar in the ukrainian national consciousness and particularly actually in the last sort of 30 or 40 years because it's been able to be talked about more freely under the soviet union you weren't really allowed to talk about it and and you certainly weren't allowed to talk about it as as a distinctly ukrainian tragedy um because that was seen as kind of nationalism uh but obviously it's become a massive psychological element in modern ukrainian identity sorry tom i interrupted you so no i interrupted you but i, I just just on that you said about how um you, you people weren't allowed to, under the soviet union to talk about it as being distinctively ukrainian and my understanding is that in the very early years of the soviet union actually ukrainian self-expression is given license so uh, it, it ukrainian does start to be started in schools all that kind of thing and then a, another way in which stalinism is terrible for Ukraine is that he slams the brakes on that. Yeah. Um, the big process of Russification again. Um, the uh, the church in Ukraine, which, you know, is a key, key kind of vessel for Ukrainian national self-consciousness, that gets very, very brutally repressed. Um, and then uh, under the Great Terror of 37-38, Ukraine suffers disproportionately from that. Yeah, you, Stalin is such a strange character because, of course, he's Georgian. Ukraine and Georgia are the two most um how was the word they're the, they're the two part constituent parts of the Soviet Union apart from Latvia Lithuania Estonia which are swallowed up later 
they're the two parts of the initial Soviet Union that have the, the, the strongest kind of national consciousness. And Stalin comes from one of them. And perhaps because he's Georgian, he's much, he's, he's really intolerant actually of, of nationalist sentiment. So when he takes over effectively from Lenin, um, or from the sort of after the chaos surrounding uh, that's followed Lenin's death, Stalin really crushes you know, Ukrainian sentiment. And you see that kind of come and go throughout the history of the Soviet Union. There'll be periods when Ukrainianization comes back up and then the, the authorities and the Kremlin kind of clamp down on it again um, later Dominic, on. Dominic, do you think that with, with Stalin in Ukraine in the 30s, um, he's kind of consciously preparing for a war with what he would call the capitalist powers, but increasingly, you know, that, that would include Germany. And he knows that in a, you know, Ukraine is the borderland that it's going to be in the front line. And so therefore, Ukraine more than anywhere, perhaps he he has to to be particularly brutal as he sees it. Yeah, prepare, I think so. Prepare the sort because it's the kind of it's the buffer for Russia proper. And, you know, if, if, if you've just had a famine that has claimed four million people at the beginning of the 30s with the start of the Second World War um, and the declaration of war against the Soviet Union in 41 fresh horrors you know of, yeah. of a comparable scale well stalin is paranoid about everybody but you're right and he's right to be paranoid about ukraine in a sense because as you say fresh horrors will come and that's partly when when the nazis invade in 1941 some ukrainians welcome it because they nationalists welcome it so the, the most ex- famous example is a man called stepan bandera who's a real again a real hate figure for kind of russian nationalists they see him as a fascist as a nazi all this stuff because at first he he's very much pro you know the germans invading thinks this is tremendous because this will allow them to be liberated from the kind of russian yoke i mean this is a very familiar pattern in that sort of part of europe in the baltic states as well actually he then turned against the nazis later on but well but because hitler's hitler's terrible i mean his yeah because hitler of the ukrainians is, is monstrous because what you think when you're ukrainian is well we've had the most awful time under stalin i mean it couldn't be worse than the stalin because so many people have died the germans are arriving hurrah because they think of the germans from the first world war and they think well they were kind of our allies and stuff um the nazis arrive and yes as you say you know most horrendous, horrendous. Because Hitler, Hitler wants Ukraine uh, as Lebensraum, as a place for Germans to spread. But he also and wants he, to eliminate the Jews, Tom. Well, he, well, he, yes, he wants to eliminate the Jews. But he, his, his policy for dealing with the Ukrainians is to kind of give them beads, and I think to put up loudspeakers in villages and play music every Saturday so that the Ukrainian peasants will come and dance and that'll well, keep them happy. He and just thinks all... they'll be slaves, basically. They'll be, yes. s- the Jews but, will I mean, be not dead as bad the as the Poles though, right? I mean, the Poles are kind of... Well, he has a particular, he has a hatred, he has Poles. a hatred of the Poles. I don't think he has a hatred of the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians, but he does regard them as inferior and he thinks if they have a future, it's, it's purely as kind of Slavic helots in yes. this rush, in this German you know, new, new Germany, basically. And when, when we talk about the, the Nazi invasion of Russia, I mean, actually, Russia proper, not very much gets occupied, right? But the whole of Ukraine does. Yeah. So the whole of Ukraine is under Nazi rule for kind of three years. Yeah. And, and the course of the, 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 the future of the Second World War is decided, you know, a lot of these battles happen in Ukraine, but the most horrendous slaughter, the Red Army and the Wehrmacht going kind of back and forth crushing i mean literally crushing villages beneath their tank tracks um civilians being killed of course when you're occupied by one side or the other your instinct is to collaborate with the occupiers just to get along but that means if they then lose 
the people who beat them will probably kill you or put you except in that lots of ukrainians then join the red army when they come rolling back in they do yes so i i gather that um that more ukrainians died fighting with the red army than british french american casualties all put together that's which a good is fact kind of amazing that. that's yeah. an incredible fact amazing fact but what happens um, at the end of the war i mean seven million people have been killed from ukraine and, and that's including the, the the jews killed in the holocaust yeah. 10 million people have been left homeless and basically ukraine has lost about half of its national wealth i mean and almost when you think about how we go on in britain about the um I mean, go on. I mean, that sounds like I'm being unduly self-flagellating. When we think of the way we talk about what happened to Coventry or London and the Blitz or how Americans talk about Pearl Harbor, um, and then you think about what happened to Ukraine. I mean, it's just, no, it's in a different league. I think it's so, I think it's, it's, I think almost, it's so numbing. It's all, it's, oh, and when you add to that, the, the, the famine that had happened 10 years previously. Yeah. I mean, it's the scale of the human suffering is, Kind of beyond comprehension. It is. I was about to say exactly the same. It, it defies your brain Westerner, seizes up. It defies imagination. It really defies imagination, which is why it's so tragic. The thought of it happening, of it happening again. Um, so anyway, before we sort of uh, get to Maudlin, uh, it, it comes out of World War Two. Back in the Soviet Union, um, Stalin uh, dies in 1953. And Nikita Khrushchev takes over. He had been the party boss in Ukraine in the late 1930s. He had orchestrated Stalin's purges there. Um, Khrushchev was, you know, the sort of the image of him sometimes that you get is this sort of round, jolly man, kind mm-hmm. of exchanging quips with Richard Nixon. Um, Khrushchev had quite a lot of blood on his hands. However, he was perhaps more sympathetic to Ukraine than Stalin was. So we mentioned 1654 and that that landmark deal. Tom, do you want to say his name again? Bogdan? <laughs> I'll leave it to you. <laughs> Bogdan Khmelnytsky. <laughs> so that he had yeah. struck as the Cossack leader with the Tsar. And to mark that moment for the 300th anniversary, Khrushchev gives Ukraine a present. And that present is Crimea. Now, of course, Crimea has always been, you know, its history has always been very closely related with that of the rest of Ukraine, but it has often been slightly separate. Um, because it was a different carnate and then because it was the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. And it was, you know, it's not full of, as it were, of former Ruthenians. It doesn't have quite the same history. So that creates a bit of a ticking time bomb, um, the award of Crimea. Although, to be fair, the Russians recognize it and make no fuss about it in the 1990s when Ukraine becomes independent. So, Dominic, just before we get on to that, yeah. the, uh, two things about Ukraine and the Soviet Union after the war. One is they become a member of the United Nations, I think. They do, yeah. Very strange that so, that happens. But again... So, uh, that, so that again undermines Putin's right. argument that, you yeah. know, I mean, the Soviet Union recognised it. So so the Ukraine is a member of the United Nations, even as a member of the, of the Soviet Union. The other, of course, the most famous thing that happens um, in the Soviet period in in uh, uh, Ukraine after the war is Chernobyl. Yeah, 86. Yeah, massively um, important, I think in discrediting the Soviet leadership, in creating a sense of... Well, it doesn't create a sense of, of Ukrainian distinctiveness because it's always been there. And actually, there have been moments in between those, in the preceding period, so in particular in the 60s and early 70s, there'd been a kind of bit of a Ukrainian revival and lots of books and journals and, lang- and published and sort of people reviving the Ukrainian language and so on. But then Chernobyl happens 
And that is a metaphor and a half, isn't it? It is. Absolutely, it is. Um, <laughs> so a actually, cloud of radioactivity so, drifting across the air. <laughs> well, well, actually, most of the cloud, Tom, ends up over Belarus, not over Ukraine. So it's Belarus that is most scarred by Chernobyl, not Ukraine. But the, as you say, it happens in Ukraine. The, the authorities in Moscow in the Kremlin try to cover it up and deny it for so long. And this is Gorbachev. Right. You know, it's not his predecessors. Um, so it absolutely creates a sense of anger and a sense of, mm. you know, it just compounds everything that has been growing for so long. Um, and it, again, like the Holodmore, it's a massively important moment in, in Ukraine's sense of itself as distinct. And, and you see at the end, I mean, again, Putin in his speech basically says, the Ukrainians didn't want independence. It was a terrible mistake that they became separate. Um, this was all because of dreadful mistakes made by the Communist Party, i.e. Gorbachev, and the people around him, and it was all sort of top-down. That is, I mean, sorry to say, but that is, well, I'm not sorry to say it. I mean, that just is nonsense. There were demonstrations at the end of the 1980s in Lviv and Kiev by people calling for greater Ukrainian autonomy. There was new language law in 1989. So this is before the end of the Soviet Union in Ukraine, generated from Kiev, saying they wanted Ukrainian to be the state language. There's a revival of the Uniate Church. There's an absolute sense at the end of the 1980s, as elsewhere in Eastern Europe, that the forces of kind of nationalism and national self-affirmation are gaining ground. And then you get the first calls for independence in 1990. So that's before the coup against Gorbachev. Then the coup against Gorbachev happens and then from that point, you know, Moscow seems to be in a complete and utter shambles and in chaos. And the the new head of the Communist Party in Ukraine is a man called Leonid Kravchuk. And he basically, you know, like so many ex-communist leaders across Eastern Europe, he thinks, well, the way to stay in power really is to work with this new force that's emerged, which is national identity and so on. So in December 1991, he has an independence referendum. I mean... You know, the idea that Ukrainian independence is this sort of mistake or this aberration, the independence movement, they win 90% of the vote. Mm. They win in every single oblast of Ukraine, including uh, Crimea. And, and Dominic, um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that I, I think, you know, Putin has talk, discussed it, talked about it a lot, is the idea that there was some agreement that, that when, when the Russian leaders agreed to Ukrainian independence, one of the conditions was that they would remain within the Russian sphere of influence and that they wouldn't join NATO and that the Americans would not try and suck it into the Western sphere of influence. Is, yeah. is that true, do you think? I think it's complicated, actually, Tom. I think um, there were sort of verbal assurances, I guess. I think uh, given in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I think there were definitely Western statesmen who said to their Russian equivalents at the time, well, obviously, we know, have no intention of you know, pushing NATO to Russia's borders. I mean, that's not going to happen. And, and I don't think they said that disingenuously. I, I think they just didn't envisage it would happen. But then but it of was course, never written into a treaty. Or it anything. wasn't written into it's a never treaty. Never a formal agreement. I mean, what was written into a treaty in 1994 was the so-called Budapest referendum. Now, that's where Ukraine had got some of Russia's, Soviet Union's nuclear weapons. And Ukraine said, we will give up these nuclear weapons as long as our borders are guaranteed. And one of the countries that was, it's a bit like the, the famous piece of paper, you know, assuring Belgian independence in the 19th century that becomes the, the sort of case, casus belli for World War I. One of the countries that signed the guarantee of Ukraine's borders was Russia, Boris Yeltsin's Russia. So, you know, that was the, if there was a moment to say, well, well actually the borders aren't quite right, we're not happy with them, 
that was, was 1991, it. or between 1991 and 94. Yeltsin was drunk, I guess. <laughs> well, Yeltsin too. was obviously hammered the whole time, and was Russia was in an absolute mess. Ukraine, by the way, was also in an absolute mess. I mean, Ukraine actually, unbelievably, did even worse in the 1990s than Russia did. Ukraine lost 60% of its GDP. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a recession and a half. That's, that, that's, <laughs> its inflation rate was in the with the tens of thousands. I mean, it has suffered this utter economic meltdown, and not least because, as we said earlier on, you know, the Donbass and places like that—it's heavy industry, coal, steel—it's it's dying out. It's doomed. I did a geography project on it at school. Of course, you did. You know all about yeah. Donetsk. I do. I do. I can still draw a little map of it. <laughs> yeah, but you can't say Bogdan Kalnitsky. <laughs> No, but I can say pig iron. Okay, well that's good. That's what it was all about. Um, yeah. So, so um, Ukraine's history since independence has obviously been tortured. It's been very difficult. They've had they had the Orange Revolution in two thousand and four. They then had the Euro Maidan movement in twenty fourteen, which is basically the sort of popular uprising against the pro Russian president Yanukovych because he wouldn't sign a deal with the EU, and that then triggered. Putin's annexation of Crimea and then the fermenting of separatism in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, and now we are kind of where, where we, we are. are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, it's not a cheery story, really. It's not. And I think that's what makes the, 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 you sort of feel like, I mean, you don't wish a war and invasion on anybody. I mean, that, that, would, that would be demented. I wouldn't even wish it on the French, Tom. But, <laughs> Uh, but if there's one people in Europe who, who probably deserve a break, suffer, yeah, who deserve a, who really do deserve a break, um, they are the Ukrainians, and I, I sort of I think it's it's tragic that they that they are in this um, they're in this position. Now, it anyway, is. we we it is we said it we is. wouldn't so, get maudlin, so we shouldn't. No, um, so uh, we hope you've enjoyed that. Um, obviously, we've we've put this out because of the um, you know the situation that we've we've just arrived at after our sweep through Ukrainian history. Um, we do have, as we've mentioned already, uh, two other podcasts touching on this theme. So there's the um, uh, the two episodes that we did on the Vikings in the East. We did. Uh, yeah. And then there is the episode that we did during the Euros when um, each time England played a, a team, um, we would look at the history of England's relationship with, the, uh, with, with that country. And of course, England played Ukraine, beat them in Rome. Um, and, uh, so you'll find, uh, the, 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 the top episodes joining English and Ukrainian history as well. And I think we are going to put them up. If you have a look at, at, um, wherever you get this podcast, Spotify or iTunes or whatever, um, you will see them immediately listed immediately after this at the top of the list of episodes that we've recorded. So, um, if you listen to, if you haven't already listened to those, uh, we, we hope you'll enjoy them. Um, well, Dominic, it's, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Sober stuff. Sober stuff. Very sober stuff. Let's hope, um, well, I mean. Let's hope I, it all sorts out. Yeah, like it will. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. We shall be back. Uh, if you want to cheer yourself up, you should listen to our episode about the uh, top 10 parties, disastrous parties in human history. Well, there's quite a lot of death and mayhem in that. But there not, is, not but the fate, the same scale. it would be hard to listen to the fate of Diedrich Graf von, what's his name? I can't remember, but but it features a Hoofer Hazler, or whatever his say. name is. That's all we'll say. <laughs> without without um, um, cracking a smile. And next week we have uh, an episode on um, 
the most uh, calamitous things that you could wear, the things that um, over the course of the history of fashion have uh, caused the most casualties. Um, and also we have um, a couple of episodes uh, basically posing the question of when did the Roman Empire fall? Uh, and we haven't actually recorded that yet, but I suspect, very much suspect, for reasons that I won't go into now, that um, that the Crimea will feature in that as well. So uh, there will be a further... Right. Further touch of the Crimea in uh, an episode on the Roman Empire next week. So um, if you've enjoyed this, I hope you will enjoy that as well. And in the meanwhile, goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.